Hello, Ars Technica readers. My name is Rob Reed, and this is the second week of an experiment we're doing here on Ars, serializing episodes of my podcast, which is called the After On Podcast, into two to three 30-ish minute chunks that we post on two to three consecutive days, roughly at lunchtime on the East Coast, which of course is a bit early for lunch in some places, a bit late in others, but once the content's up there, you can listen whenever you want. This week's episode will run in three parts starting today, and our guest is the world-renowned roboticist and AI pioneer Rodney Brooks. For those who missed last week's episode with Harvard genomicist and bioengineer George Church, I'll now briefly review my own background, and if you don't need this context, it'll run about a minute, so feel free to skip ahead. Anyway, I'm a recovering serial entrepreneur turned podcaster. The best-known company that I started built the Rhapsody Music Service back in the day, which created the unlimited on-demand streaming model that most people now associate with Spotify. These days, my main job is writing sprawling science fiction novels for the Del Rey imprint at Random House. And my podcast began as an offshoot of my most recent novel, which is also called After On. This show, as you'll soon find out, dives deep into complex issues in science, tech, and society, which we should all probably understand a bit better. And each episode's built around an in-depth interview with a world-class expert in the relevant field. I do 20 to 30 hours of upfront research and preparation before sitting down with my guests, and I structure my interviews carefully so that their information density hopefully feels a bit more like a TED Talk than a meandering long-form interview. Ideally, I try to bring my listeners from glancing familiarity with the day's subject to a top percentile understanding of it in the course of the 60 to 90 minutes that most of my episodes run. On to the detailed background of this week's guest, Rodney Brooks. It's a rare and exalted distinction to be considered a true founding parent of any major field of tech, and it's virtually unheard of for someone to achieve that in two separate domains. But Rodney's one of the very few people who have done just that. When he left Australia for the region that would later become known as Silicon Valley, there were quite literally three mobile robots of consequence on the entire planet. Years later, Rodney would found a company which has now brought tens of millions of these critters into the world. His products have saved countless lives and have also liberated thousands of acres of carpeting from dust, crumbs, dog hair, and other detritus. The realm of AI was almost as nascent as that of robotics when Rodney first entered it, and a separate company he founded became the leading provider of AI development tools throughout the 80s and early 90s. And by the way, he squeezed all of his entrepreneurship in while pursuing a very storied academic career, largely at MIT, where he ran one of the two largest and most prominent AI centers in the world for many, many years. Because Rodney witnessed and shaped so much of the history of both robotics and AI, we'll spend a bit more time than usual talking about past decades. That's probably a bit more than 20 minutes of our conversation. I've included it in part because it's great storytelling, but mainly because it's important to understand the many false starts and great leaps forward that these fields have both endured, as this will bring a much more nuanced perspective on their present and future. And that future is the subject of the bulk of our conversation. For one thing, we'll discuss self-driving cars as they comprise the very intersection of robotics and artificial intelligence. Rodney considers the forecast made by many leaders in this field to be irrationally optimistic. Those who want their self-driving cars immediately won't necessarily like this, but you have to respect that Rodney's own predictions are very concrete and verifiable. Also, he makes them in writing and affixes them with hard dates. 
something that many futurists lack the courage to do. Rodney also diverges from fashionable narratives about the interplay between employment and automation. To paraphrase one of his blog posts, he's not at all worried that there won't be enough jobs to go around. Instead, he's concerned that there won't be enough labor available to do the jobs that will need to be done even after many more revolutionary strides are made in robotics and other automation. Yes, really. Thirdly, Rodney's far less concerned about super AI risks than many of tech's most prominent commentators. If your job description includes freaking out about AI risks, and I guess mine kind of does, you may find his perspective to be frustratingly sanguine. On the other hand, if you prefer that humanity not perish at the hands of amoral and genocidal AI overlords, you might find his arguments reassuring, particularly given the authority and experience that they're based on. And with that, it's time for our interview with Rodney Brooks. So Rodney, I'm delighted that we're able to catch up during one of our brief overlaps here in San Francisco. Thanks so much for making time. Happy to be here. I'd like to start by going briefly through some of your early background. You grew up on one of the southern fringes of the inhabited world, didn't you? Yeah, from where I grew up, the next thing south was actually Antarctica. I grew up on the south coast of Australia, and at the time was actually the third biggest city in the country, Adelaide. Back then, you literally would get your tech news by steamship. Yes, we'd get mostly British magazines, and they would show up three months after the date on the cover because they came by ship. And then you were obsessed with robotics and computing from a very, very early age, correct? You had a garden shed where you built all these things? Yeah, my mother actually bought me two magazine-like books. There were a series called The How and Why Wonder Books, which were American books. She bought me two in 1961, one on electricity and one on computers and giant brains. I still have those to this day. And from that, I learned how to build little simple electrical circuits with materials I had, nails, the metal from a vegetable can, wires, light bulbs from flashlights, and batteries. And I started building ores and ands, and not was a little harder. Not tricky. And started building little circuits from a pretty early age, around nine or ten. We've all heard about the budding young entrepreneur in the back shed. But you're building computers and also nascent robots, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1960s. So maybe a decade before we normally associate with this activity. I wasn't so good mechanically. The first time I got a robot to actually move was more like 1970. Oh, much later. To be fair. (laughs) Actually, by 1971, I was actually building printed circuit boards where I would etch them. I found a source of surplus transistors by that time and was building circuits with hundreds of transistors. And then university in 1972. Yes. And so I started at a university called Flinders University in Adelaide. It was six years old when I went there. And all the math faculty were refugees from Czechoslovakia, from the Prague Spring. Oh, 1968. Where they had fled. Yeah. And so I ended up getting a classical Eastern European mathematics education. In my four years there, I took 41 classes. One was in chemistry, Mm -hmm. one was in physics, and 39 were in mathematics. That's a huge amount of math. Yeah. Now, this would have been well before there was a computer science department there, of course. Right. There was no computer science department. The mainframe for the university was a 16-kilobyte IBM 1130, a megabyte disk. It had four full-time operators running it. Wow. And you punched your cards and put them in, and 24 hours later, you'd get a printout. Wonderfully for me, wonderfully. Jaroslav Kautsky, who taught numerical analysis, 
recognized in me something and arranged for me to have that computer to myself for 12 hours every Sunday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. You talk about the 10,000 hours. That was my 10,000 hours. Yeah, you probably had more compute resources than almost anybody on the continent at that point, having 12 hours of a dedicated mainframe like that, right? Yeah, and I had access to everything. So naturally, uh, when you were done with all that, there was nowhere to go but Silicon Valley. Not that anybody knew what Silicon Valley was yet. Silicon Valley. I knew that I had to come to the United States. Yeah. And the three important places in the U.S. for computer science at the time, and still largely today, were... MIT, Carnegie Mellon, and Stanford. Hasn't changed. So I applied to those three. Yeah. Did not get into MIT. Ah. Did get into Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. and to Stanford. Yeah. So I went to the library, found an atlas, and looked up where <laughs> Pittsburgh and Palo Alto were. And Palo Alto was closer to Australia. So that's what I chose. That cannot be denied. And then in 1977, when you came over, describe the state of robotics at that time, specifically how many mobile robots were in the world in 1977? As far as I know, unless there were some in the Soviet Union, which we didn't know about, but that anyone knew of, there were three. There was a robot called Hilaire at Lars in Toulouse, France. There was a rover at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. And there was something called the CART, C-A-R-T. The CART. The CART. Definite article. So it, wasn't, it was not an acronym. It was just the CART. At Stanford AI Lab. Well, given that one of the three robots was there, it was obviously a very good choice that you did make versus Carnegie Mellon. My thesis was not on that mobile. It was not on the cart, but it was there. I helped Hans Moravec with his experiments as he was finishing up his PhD thesis. I read somewhere you were experimenting with a 28-hour day. Yeah, one summer, because I was always getting up later and later, I decided, okay, I'm just going to go for it. I will do six 28-hour cycles a week. That way I'll be able to get to certain social events on Saturday nights. Because Hans was working with the cart late at night, and you were on your bizarre 28-hour cycle. So you had a lot of time helping him out with the cart stuff. He would try to do his runs from 10 or 11 p.m. till about 5 a.m., when no one else was using the machine yeah. largely, so he'd get enough computer to run his cart in real time so that it could move a meter every 15 minutes. And it would scan the floor and make sure it wasn't bumping into things, and it would take 15 minutes to say, okay, I'm ready for my next meter. Ready my next for my meter. next one meter. My next one meter dash. Yeah. Yes. So it is intriguing that you did come to robotics when it was virtually non-existent. What was the state of AI at that point? I know the term had been around for over 20 years because there had been that Dartmouth seminar in the 50s. What was the state of the field? The Dartmouth Conference of 1956 was initiated by John McCarthy, and John McCarthy was the director of the Stanford AI Lab when I got there. Very remote figure. And he had founded the AI Lab at MIT as well, correct? Well, along with Marvin Minsky, and then he left very soon after that, and he came to Stanford and founded the Stanford AI Lab. But there were little pockets of AI, apart from those big three, you know, Berkeley had a little bit, some Canadian universities, but there were labs, they weren't departments. departments. And then John McCarthy, he had co-founded the AI lab at MIT, he founded your lab, he named the field, he's the one who coined the term artificial intelligence. And so you were learning from the founder of the field, or one of the two or three founders of the field. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. Everyone knew everyone. There were maybe 250 AI researchers in the world, and everyone knew everyone. And what was the state and significance of the language LISP at that point? Well, LISP had been developed by John McCarthy when he was at MIT, and then there were different versions of it had been built everywhere. And LISP was the standard language that everyone was using. So LISP was the language of AI at that time, and for quite some time after that. For a long time after that, yeah. I haven't hacked on my own version of LISP since 
yesterday afternoon. Since yesterday afternoon. It's been that long. So it is still a vibrant... It <laughs> I is, still use it, a version that I built in the early 1990s. I'm still tweaking it. That's fantastic. So this was the language of AI, and you ended up founding or co-founding a company called Lucid that was really core to its proliferation, wasn't it? Yeah. At MIT, they had started building special purpose workstations to run Lisp. Specifically for Lisp. They were called Lisp machines, all built by hand. There were about 19 or 20 of them at that point at the AI lab when I got All built by hand. Yeah, built there. And then two companies spun off, one called Lisp Machine Inc. and one called Symbolics. I remember Symbolics boxes. They were dedicated machines. Yeah. So back at Stanford, just before I had left, I had advised a good buddy of mine that his idea was stupid, dumb idea, and that Workstations were not the future, mainframes were the future. But Andy Bechtelsheim went ahead and founded Sun Microsystems anyway. Boy, did he. And so I knew about those workstations. They were not custom-built processors. They used standard chips. And it seemed to me that Symbolics was every machine was custom-designed. The CPU was custom-designed. They couldn't put as much engineering oomph into it as the chips which were used for other workstations, other things. There was going to be much more engineering going in. I decided that even though at that point, Lisp in hardware had an advantage over Lisp in software, Lisp in software would ultimately win out. So just to clarify for those who aren't familiar with this era, Sun and several other companies created this new category of computers called workstations, which were way more powerful than PCs, but like PCs could be used for lots of different things. And you believed, correctly as it turns out, that computers that could only write Lisp would be overwhelmed in the marketplace by workstations, which could do that and countless other things. So you created a software Lisp package that could be used on a diversity of computers, including those of Sun. So anyway, back to what happened. So when I joined the faculty at Stanford in 1983, one of the first things I did while I was writing a book on Lisp for my undergraduate course, while I had my first baby, I also wrote a software Lisp system for the Sun workstations. Mm -hmm. And middle of 84, I was leaving Stanford and going back to MIT. And a bunch of other people saw my Lisp running on those workstations and said, we could start a company building software version of Lisp. So I teamed up with them. And just to get their first funding and get bootstrapped, they decided, you know, Brooks's compiler, it's sort of hacky, but we'll use it to start with. And so a week after we incorporated the company, got funding. I left, went to MIT to join the faculty for the next few years while being a junior professor. And pretty much every morning, I would have a 40 megabyte cartridge tape ready for the Federal Express person who would come and take the cartridge tape, sometimes bring the newspaper in as they came, and ship that across the country on what I fondly called Federal Express Net. Yes. (laughs) And then there was a... uh, guy at Lucid, one of his jobs was to take my code and integrate it into the build system. He was uh, not exactly complimentary about everything. He called my compiler Bertha. Uh Brooks extremely ran the twisted hack assortment. Okay. Yeah. And ultimately, when the company failed, he went off and got another job. He became employee number one at a little place up in Seattle called Amazon. Oh. Shell Caffin. Nicely done. He did very, very well. Now, with Lucid, you ended up creating Lisp that would run on 19 different platforms because there were many, many different dialects of Unix back in those well, days. Well, it was the many different dialects of processing. Right. It was great that I was at MIT because there were so many spin-outs from Digital Equipment Corporation. 
that all had their own architecture. There was Prime, there was Apollo, there were a bunch of others, and then there was DEC itself, which had multiple architectures. Did you run on MIPS? Yeah, we ran on MIPS. So you ran on Silicon Graphics then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my first job in tech was at Silicon Graphics. You ended up betting on the workstation platform at exactly the right time. During the great thriving of Lisp, I imagine the vast majority of people who were using it were using it on Lucid. Is that correct? Yeah, it was the big seller. There were some free versions around, but we were much better. And then in the midst of all this, you're having an academic career, obviously, at MIT. And eventually, you were running the AI lab, correct? Yeah, I had started out building custom mobile robots during the 80s, teaching Lisp. And in 97, I became director of the lab. So very foundational moments, clearly for both robotics and for AI. And in the midst of this, in 1990, you founded iRobot, correct? In 1990, I found iRobot. Lucid was still around for a couple more years, but along with Colin Angle and Helen Grainer, Colin was my student. Helen, I was her registration officer, which meant I had to approve her course selection. We thought robots must be important, so let's start a company. We didn't have a business model. We started the company, and I was sort of annoyed at VCs after the Lucid experience, so we decided not to take any external funding. We decided to bootstrap. Really? I didn't know that. We bootstrapped from 1990 to 1998 before we took any external funding. And we would sell robots before we had built them with 50% up front. And that was how we financed the building. Got it. I know you've written elsewhere. You had 14 failed business models, correct? Yes, Colin Angle, who's still the CEO. Oh, is he? He says it's the only job he's had besides camp counselor as a teenager. (laughs) He's got a slide where he shows the 14 business models that failed. Including, what was it, Baby Jade? No, uh, My Real Baby. My Real Baby, which was a a robotic doll, right? A robotic doll. Humanoid. Humanoid. We partnered with... um, Hasbro, right? Hasbro, and we sold them. Right around 98, we had 30 employees with six divisions, (laughs) working in six different areas, downhole oil well robots, military robots, toys, etc. Got it. And um, I personally learned how to do low-cost manufacturing. I was the one who went to Taipei, spent time there with various people, but we soon discovered that we had to show them at Toy Fair and other people would see our toy and copy it. Well, well, I got to commend you. I I caught some video online and you did manage to create a truly creepy doll. It was creepy. Really creepy. It was with Hasbro. Yes, of course. But what I'm proudest of there is the low-cost manufacturing. When we started, the prototype had six motors in the face. When we shipped it, it had one motor and you couldn't tell the difference. Well, after 14 failed business models, you suddenly had not one but two hits in the same year, 2002. We had two commercial hits and a wild publicity hit. 2002, we were seen by millions of people live with a robot in the Great Pyramid looking into a cavern that hadn't been seen before, drilling a hole, and the big reveal, what was in the cavern? Nothing. Nothing. Yes. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I could guess. I lived in Cairo for a while, um, so I, I know what's in those caverns. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was early September 2002. September 18th, we released the Roomba. And earlier in the year, we had sent two of our military robots, packbots, to Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan. Just two of them? Just two to start with. And what was the intended purpose of them at that point? The intended purpose and the use was to go look in caves. The big thing was, what are in the caves? Where's everyone hiding? What's going on? And the 82nd, 101st Airborne said, we don't need no stinking robots. Until they got there and there was this black hole that they had to bend down to go in. And suddenly the idea of sending a robot in ahead of them with a camera feeding back 
what was in there. It seemed like a good idea before walking in there. And then ultimately, fast forward, there ended up being 6,500 packbots deployed throughout Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, is that right? Roughly that number. And they ended up being used for IEDs, not just yes. for caves, but for lots of other things. Oh, lots of other things, yeah. Their big use really was IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Yeah, yeah. So all those roadside bombs that if people remember the news reports, things blowing up on the side of the road. When we first went there, the US military doctrine was to put someone in a bomb suit send them out with a stick to poke the bomb. That would be a lousy job. And then, obviously, the Roomba is a household name. There are 25 million of them in the world now? Yeah, it's not clear how many, but 800 million in revenue. Wow. You know, that's a lot of Roombas. That's a lot of Roombas. That's 800 million a year that iRobot is doing right now. So tens of millions of Roombas out there, millions shipping every year. And comparing that to a world in which there were three mobile robots... Not all that long before. It feels good. But I tell you what the best feeling I have is in 2011, a week after the Fukushima disaster, we sent some robots and those robots were used in the shutdown of the reactor. They were used. They yeah. were used. They're still there. Yeah. Still there. It was a quite a good feeling to see that we had helped. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you saved the lives of countless soldiers as well. You just will never know how many lives yeah, you saved. Yeah, we often get postcards saying, yeah. the robot saved my life, which the company has kept and has on display. And iRobot robots have cleaned pools, they've mowed lawns, they've cleaned floors. But then you ended up deciding to move on. Was it 2008 that you started Rethink Robotics? Yes, yeah, I did. And you also left academia at that point, correct? Yeah, I'd stepped down as lab director in 2007, and I was on sabbatical for a year. And I was still CTO of iRobot. September 1st, 2008, I took leave from MIT and I stepped down as CTO of iRobot. I stayed on the board for another three years and started a new company. And that is Rethink Robotics. And what did you feel that the world of robotics needed at that point that iRobot wasn't in a position to provide that this new company, this new platform? Yeah. So it came from two sets of experiences. I had been involved in manufacturing in China since the late 90s. We use contract manufacturers. We had noticed that after Golden Week, which is the Chinese New Year, the biggest migration of humans in the world, we would have trouble staffing as many lines because not so many people would come back. Ooh, so there was huge churn then. There was churn. Yeah. You know, that was getting weird. And then simultaneously, as director of CSAIL, we were working with a bunch of Taiwan-based companies So we started a lot of joint research projects with them, and they would tell me about their labor problems in mainland China. Labor problems in mainland China? Just not enough people. In the late 90s? No, this is the early 2000s. Early 2000s. 2003, 2004, 2005. But still at a time when I think... When everyone else thought, ah, there's infinite labor in China. Yeah, I mean, I remember very, very sophisticated people saying, Western China is going to export deflation to the rest of the world for a decade because there's so many folks... But there were already labor shortages. One person who said to me at the time, you know, in the old days, we would put a little three-inch by five-inch card outside a factory saying we want labor tomorrow, and there'd be a line around the block. Now we advertise on TV, we have scholarship programs, we do this, we do that, we still can't get enough people. So I started hearing that. At the same time, I was in an advisory group to John Deere. So I visited just about every John Deere factory in the United States. And what did I hear there? Our manufacturing population is aging. There are no young people in Dubuque, Iowa anymore. We have to hang on to our workforce. We can't replace them. And those who are in Dubuque don't want to go to work in the factory. No one aspires to be a factory worker in the factory. And that's what happened in China, by the way. Not only did the standard of living go up, but education went up. That was an aspiration at one point. It's not an aspiration now. So I'm seeing the U.S. coming labor shortages in manufacturing, despite people thinking all the jobs have been stolen away. And I see them not being fillable in China. So I thought, okay, we need robots in factories. There were robots in factories, in car factories. 
But if you went into a car factory then, or you go into a car factory today, there are two worlds. There's the world of the body shop, where there's welding and robots and no people, Dante's Inferno. Sort of the nobody shop. The nobody there are no shop. humans in there because it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. Yeah. And it's been automated up the wazoo. It's an expensive process. And then there's final assembly where there's very few robots. And it's all people. It's all people. Robots and people didn't mix. Because of danger. Well, two reasons. One was the danger. The other is if there are people around, they're messy and things move. And the way automation worked... We know exactly where every piece is. We keep track of it. No surprises. No surprises. So in looking at Chinese factories and looking at shop floors of deer plants and others, I thought what we needed were robots that could intermingle with people with no cages. Because if you're going to replace all the people, it's an enormous capital expense. Then it locks you into high volumes. You can't do it in low volumes. And all the robots were literally behind cages to protect humans from them. Yeah. one way of looking at it in some factories, there are a few cages that humans can, can be go in into amongst yeah. <laughs> yeah. the robots. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there were two things. Make it so that it was safe to be close to a robot and make it so the robot could adapt to things not being in precise locations. So a person to just push up a cart of parts next to the robot yep. without having to get it down to, and this is the normal number, one-tenth of a millimeter precision. That's what you needed for a traditional industrial robot. That's yeah. the number today. Hello again, Ars readers. That was the first excerpt of three from my interview with Rodney Brooks, which, if you're curious, originally ran on my podcast on March 19th of this year. If you can't wait to hear the rest of it, or if you'd like to browse my other 30-ish episodes, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. You'll find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, multiple episodes connected to neuroscience and consciousness, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. If you like what I do, I hope you'll consider subscribing to my podcast and listening to some of the episodes in the archive all of which were designed to have long shelf lives and none of which have gone stale yet. And of course, you can join me here tomorrow on ours when we will continue with part two of this interview. We'll pick right up where we left off. In fact, if you listen closely, you might even catch the final millisecond of the word Rodney just closed on, which was today. It's pretty clear he was saying that word, but if there's any doubt in your mind, we'll put it to rest tomorrow. Please join me.